For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, you know, there's certain spiritual truths that you just really can't grasp until you need them. And Psalm 31 contains one of those images. God is our safe place. Last week we had God, Yahweh as our shepherd. This week we have Yahweh as our safe place, our hiding place. And Corey Ten Boom in her book, The Hiding Place. Anybody here read this book? It's so good. Um, it's a story about this, uh, her experience living in Holland in the 1930s. Peaceful Holland. Uh, her father ran a watchmaker's shop. Their family lived there. And she tells this story about how they pulled their Bible off the shelf for their daily Bible reading as a family. And he read a verse from the Psalms. And the verse was this. The psalm writes, you are my hiding place and my shield, I hope in your word. And Corey says she thought to herself, what kind of hiding place, I wondered idly. <laughs> what was there to hide from? I mean, it's Holland, it's the 1930s, right? <laughs> well, the rest of the book goes on to detail her experiences. And in her case, what was there to hide from? Well, it was Nazis who invaded Holland, conquered it easily, who began their extermination program of Jews and other minorities. It tells of... Um, their family, how they decided they were not going to stand idly by and let this go on, but they built a hiding place up in the top floor of their house in the, in the back part of Corey's bedroom. You can actually still see the hiding place today. You can go visit this house. You can see there it is. There's a brick, a false brick wall they built with a false um, linen cabinet there. And they could hide like half a dozen Jews behind that wall. And it tells of how this went on for a couple of years before they were finally caught. Although all the Jews they were hiding escaped. But they were caught. They were sent to prison and then a more um, restrictive prison and then to one of the death camps. They ended up at, she and her sister Betsy ended up at the woman's death camp, Ravensbrook. And, you know, as the book goes on, you know, they had this physical hiding place in their room. But what she came to realize is that the only true hiding place is the presence of my heavenly father. As she went from prison to prison, as those who she loved more than anyone in the world perished, she had to run closer and closer to God, who is her rock, her fortress, her hiding place. And that's where she found safety. And that's really what we're going to see here in Psalm 31. David, our same author from last week, this is 3,000-year-old Hebrew poetry. He writes this poem about this time in his life when he was surrounded by enemies on every side and he turned to God as his rock, as his fortress, as his hiding place. And you know, a lot of people have turned to Psalm 31 in their hour of greatest need. In fact, for me, I, you know, I, Psalm 31 was just another psalm for many, many years in my Christian life until God brought about circumstances in my life where I was ready for the truth and where I needed it and where I appreciated it in a way that I never had before and have drawn great comfort from this psalm at key times in my life when I needed it. I noticed too that um, many others in scripture have also turned to Psalm 31 in their hour of great need. The prophet Jeremiah quotes this psalm five different times at least. He says there are terrors on every side, talking about just how he's surrounded by enemies and how scared he is. And he, he, lived, he lived a life of suffering. The prophet Jonah when he was at his darkest moment, he quotes from, among other passages, Psalm 31. Jesus, 
You'll recognize some of the words tonight because Jesus, his final words from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's quoting Psalm 31. This is where he turned in his hour of greatest distress. And Stephen, the martyr, followed in his footsteps just a few years later. As he was bludgeoned by a mob, he said the same thing that Jesus did. I'm committing myself into your hands, Father, as he perished. First Peter, he echoes the words of Psalm 31 as he urges his readers to keep on entrusting their souls to a faithful creator and doing what is right, even in the face of unjust suffering. So he turns to Psalm 31 as well. Let's just read the first few verses here. David calls out to God. He says, Yahweh. So he starts with Yahweh. I've come to you for protection. Don't let me be disgraced. Save me. For you do what is right. Turn your ear to listen to me. Rescue me quickly. Be my rock of protection, a fortress where I will be safe. For you are my rock and my fortress, he says. For the honor of your name, lead me out of this danger. Pull me from the trap my enemies set for me. For I am providing protection in you alone. He refers to enemies several times throughout the course of this psalm. And you know, enemies... What enemies is David talking about here? Well, we don't really know. We do know that David had a lot of enemies in his life. We can read the, the historical accounts of his life in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. And um, he spent um, a lot of years on the run. He was anointed the king of Israel. And yet, after he was anointed king, the, act, the current king of Israel started trying to kill him. You know, he faced battles against uh, many different armies who were at war with Israel. He was attacked many times by King Saul himself. Later on in his life, he has to flee from his capital because of revolt that his son Absalom was leading against him. And so David, we see him fleeing from town to town, cave to cave, running for his life. He had plenty of enemies. And so this would have been written about one or maybe multiple times, all kind of rolled together into one single experience. Who knows? It doesn't tell us. Um, and you know, Scripture says a lot about enemies. We see these all over Scripture. Even reading the life of David, it's a little bit hard for us sometimes to read his life and really connect with it because we just don't have the kind of enemies that he had. It's like we're reading about, yet again, David is almost killed. We flip the page, another year goes by on the run. He's almost killed again, and we're sitting there. We're just sipping our pumpkin spice latte. And we're like, ooh, I think I'm a little cold. I want to go adjust the thermostat by one degree. But scripture talks a lot about enemies. This is kind of a normal experience for believers in God to have enemies. You know, the basic meaning of the word, it's actually a verb used here in the Psalms, to be hostile towards. So it's people, situations that are hostile toward me. And, and you know, even our English word carries the same basic meaning. Someone who's hostile toward me. Someone who's an opponent. Um, you know, when we, read, when we talk about enemies, one thing we need to keep in mind is that God was our enemy. If, we, if you are a Christian here, God used to be your enemy. The Bible says that we were born into this world and as we commit sin, that God is perfectly righteous and he's got to do something about the wickedness in the world and we were contributors to that. And so scripture says that at one point we were God's enemies, but in Romans 5 it tells us our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies. He says, you know, somebody might die for a really good person, but for an enemy? And yet that's exactly what Christ did for us. 
We were God's enemies, whether we felt it or not, we were. And God sent his son to die for you. And as a result, we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because of our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. We go from enemies to friends, and that's about as big of a switch as you can get. Yeah, Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. This is the Christian way. And, and he gave us the ultimate example of that by dying on the cross for his enemies. And so tonight you can go from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God simply by receiving Jesus Christ's death as payment for your sins. You can have a friendship with God that will never end. And that's what God wants you to do tonight. And as we go and we talk about enemies here in Psalm 31, we need to remember how God treated his enemies and what he did for us while we were his enemy. Another enemy we can't lose sight of is the Bible says there, well, there's a spiritual enemy. The Bible calls him Satan. And we don't have time to go into why we believe in Satan, but Jesus talked about him. Scripture talks about him. He's a, there, there are unseen spiritual beings all around us and watching what is happening here on earth in the heavenly realms. And, and Satan is God's number one enemy. He's opposed to God. Um, he's not more powerful than God. In fact, he's got to get permission from God to do pretty much anything. God has given him a pretty long leash, though, in this world, thanks in part to the fact that we've thrown off God's leadership. And so Satan is the enemy of God's people. Peter says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so Satan, if you are a believer in God, Satan is also your enemy now. He hates you. And, you know, Jesus said, love your enemies. And I had somebody ask me, well, does that mean we should love Satan? And I'm like, no. <laughs> the Bible never says anything like that. We respect Satan. Uh, we do not love Satan and try to do what's best for Satan. No. Um, he, um, he's opposed to God's people. The Bible, the Scripture says he's angry because he knows his time is short. And he's the real source of much hostility against Christians. He will take every opportunity he gets to vent his anger. Yeah, scripture teaches that um, we get just brief insights into the heavenly realms in this particular area, but apparently there are times where he's given permission to vent his anger against even the people of God. God lets it happen for some reason um, with limits. Um, and I've, you know, we, we can't say for certain, you know, we see things in our lives that seem like this, we can't say for certain, but it sure does seem like this happens sometimes. Um, we had a situation a couple years ago where two girls from our home church, they were heading home after a meeting and the one girl was parallel parking the car and the other girl was out trying to make sure she didn't hit the bumper of the car in front of her. And all of a sudden, some dude just comes up and grabs the girl out of the car and just starts pounding on her, choking her, breaks her jaw, beats her, and then just walks away. I was talking to the police officer the next day and I said, is this common? He goes, I've never seen this before. For a dude to just beat a woman up, a very little woman, and then just to walk away, didn't take any money, didn't do anything to her. I've wondered in hindsight if this is Satan venting his fury on the people of God. I was talking to a friend of mine who had to go and deliver some really bad news to a whole group of people. And he knew this was not going to be popular. And he goes and he tells them, and he said, the hatred, the vitriol, the, just the abuse that he took from those people verbally. 
He said he was standing back up against a wall and he said, you know, I actually felt like the hatred was emanating so powerfully off this crowd. He said, I felt like if I had lifted up both of my feet, I would have remained right where I was, pinned to that wall. And he said, I think, I think this was Satan just venting his hatred against the people of God. He will do that. And so we need to not judge according to mere appearances, but we need to see the spiritual battle that's going on and um, realize there might be something that, that, that this smaller thing needs to be viewed in light of the bigger thing. You know, people can be our enemies. People can set themselves up as enemies of you, enemies of God's people. And sometimes it's because you're following God. Look what Jesus says. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you. I've chosen you out. You're now citizens of heaven. We are lights on a hill, but some people don't like the light. And so he says, I've picked you, and don't be surprised if you get hostility. Because the reason people hated Jesus, think about how many enemies Jesus had during the course of his life. Think about the enemies of the early church. We read about this all over the pages of scripture. Whether it's the Pharisees in Jerusalem or the idol makers in Ephesus, we see this all over. And it's because of what they were teaching. Because Jesus was teaching something that they didn't like. And he told us to say the same thing. He told us to preach a message of bad news and good news. The bad news, your works can't, aren't good enough. You're not good enough for God. You deserve eternal judgment. But the good news is Jesus took that for you. Some people don't like the bad news, though. They don't like being told they're wrong. And so we are faced with a choice. Have everybody like us or be faithful to what Jesus said. You know, we might have coworkers, classmates, or even neighbors who set themselves up as hostile toward us. Maybe it's because you're not into the things that they're doing. Paul says they're surprised that they don't, you don't plunge with them headlong into the same, the same sorts of things. Maybe it's because you're, just, you're speaking God's truth and they don't like what God has to say and they're taking it out on you. Um, you know, it could be that um, maybe you've got neighbors that don't like you for some reason or other. Maybe it's because you invite people over and they don't like the fact that you're using the public parking spaces on the street and they come over and they yell at you in front of your whole home church sometimes, you know. Maybe some of us are in that situation. Maybe some of us have legal opponents. We might be involved in legal action right now where someone is, is coming after us in a court of law. There might be Christians who used to be friends with you who aren't anymore. For some reason or other, they've walked away from God and uh, they're saying all kinds of nasty things about you. And, um, you know, I think we should try as much as possible to part on friendly terms with people, but it doesn't always work out that way. And um, they can, you know, the internet is such a great megaphone to spin whatever version of reality they want and uh, can hurt pretty bad. There might be fellow Christian workers who feel like an enemy right now. And, um, you know, Paul says to the Galatians, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? So he, he had conflict with fellow believers. And, um, you know, Scripture says we should be able to work out these conflicts with a fellow walking Christian, that we've got enough in common that we need, and we both have a relationship with Christ. We should know how to forgive. We should know how to resolve conflict. And so 
Um, we should be able to work it out. It doesn't always happen. But maybe that's one application here is maybe there's somebody who's a believer who's an enemy that shouldn't be. And maybe, um, maybe you need to try a little harder to get that resolved. I mean, have you really tried that hard? Have you gotten somebody else involved? Um, maybe you could be the one to apologize first. Think about that. Fellow Christian workers, though, can sometimes feel like enemies. Family members. Oh, man. Jesus said a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And for some of us, this is, um, this is all too true. We become Christians, and um, you became a Christian. You thought they were going to be so excited about this new thing that you found, and it turns out they were not. And they interpreted uh, your words as hostility and have returned that to you as well. And, you know, I honestly feel like um, our families should be happy with the changes that are happening to us. I, I think, I, I know more people whose relationships with their families got better as a result of becoming a Christian. I know that was my experience. But that's not everybody's experience. And this can be pretty difficult when your enemies are members of your own household. Well, David's got some enemies here. Might look a little different than ours, but... Uh, the basic idea is not that different. And let's see how he responds when, he's, when he feels like he's surrounded by enemies on all sides, surrounded by hostility and opposition. And of course, he starts by talking directly to Yahweh, God. That's the first word of this song. And then he states the exact same thing seven different ways. I've come to you for protection. Don't let me be disgraced. Save me for you do what's right. Turn your ear to listen to me. Rescue me quickly. Be my rock of protection, a fortress where I will be safe. You see boldness here from David. You see him saying the same thing seven times. When scripture repeats basically the same thing seven times, you know that's pretty important. And he says, he's making all these, these pleas to God, all these requests to God. There's a boldness here. And what's the basis for his boldness? Well, he says, be my rock of protection, a fortress where I will be safe. Why? Because you are my rock and my fortress. He says, I already have this right, I already have this privileged relationship. I'm just calling on you to come through on your promises, God. He's claiming the promises. He's praying the promises of scripture to God. You are my rock and my fortress, my safe place. And you know, when I read the language, this is a common image in the Psalms. When I read this, it's hard not to think about one of the greatest scenes in the history of cinema, Lord of the Rings. The, fort, the great fortress of Helm's Deep. Yes, deep in the mountains, at the end of a canyon, surrounded by mountains on every side. You know, this is the point in, um, if, you've, if you've read the book or seen the movie, it's the point where the kingdom of Rohan is about to get attacked by the evil Saruman. And um, the problem is Rohan is not ready at all for this attack because King Theoden has been lulled to inaction by a spy. This uh, bad, this evil advisor named Wormtongue who has wormed his way into the councils of the king and is telling him, you don't need to worry about it. Saruman's not going to attack you. Oh, don't trust Gandalf. He keeps casting suspicion on the one guy that King Theoden should have trusted. Gandalf, the great wizard, who's only looking out for Theoden's good. And uh, finally, King Theoden awakens from his slumber 
He boots Wormtongue out of the palace and realizes we are being assaulted here, assailed by uh, really insurmountable odds here. There's no way we can stand up, especially in a state of, of lack of preparation that we are. And so what does he do? What does he do when things seem bleak and all hope seems lost and there's nowhere else to turn? He runs to the one fortress that has never, ever fallen, the fortress at Helm's Deep. And he goes there because he says, I've got to make a stand somewhere and this is the place. And that's what David is saying here. He says, I'm running to the one fortress that has never fallen, the one that has always been there for me, the one that I can trust. I am going to Yahweh. You are my rock and my fortress. And you know, there's a desperation here to David's prayers. When we're, when we're not desperate, our prayers might be, a little, might be theologically correct and a little bit um, lethargic. But when we are at this point that David's at, we're bold, we're desperate. And we are finally, in some cases, we're finally talking reality with God. We're not just putting on the prayer voice, but we're really talking. And that's what you see from David here. He says, for the honor of your name, Yahweh, lead me out of this danger. He says, not just because you're my rock and my fortress, but for your sake, God. You know, David understood there's more important factors in play here than my suffering. God had picked David publicly. He had anointed him. He had made him king. And he says, if you do all that, then you let me perish. What's it say about you? And so he says, God, for your name's sake, and we see Moses praying this way many times, God, for your name's sake, act here. Joshua prays that way in scripture. Um, you know, anytime we can recognize that our suffering isn't just about us, that's a good thing. You realize how many people are watching you. They're watching your suffering to see how you respond. Not just people here. Maybe even enemies are watching how you suffer. And they're drawing conclusions about God. But there's, there's unseen beings in the heavenly realms, a great cloud of witnesses, Hebrews calls them, that's watching you and the, the trial that you're facing, the hostility that is stacked against you, and how are you responding? And they're drawing conclusions about God as a result. Pull me from the trap my enemies set for me, for I find protection in you alone. Yeah, not my ingenuity, my quick speaking, my charisma, my money. No, any protection we cook up for ourselves is not going to be worth anything compared to the protection that David here is finding in his rock, his fortress. He says, I entrust my spirit into your hand. He says, I don't care how many other fists are raised against me, God, how many other hands are plotting against me. Your hand, that is where I will place myself. And that's what Jesus did, what he quoted from the cross. That's what Stephen quoted as he was um, dying. And that's where I hope you find me, trusting my spirit into your hand. Rescue me, Yahweh, for you're a faithful God. And so this is not even a command. The verb tense is one of like completed action. Like David is so certain he's praying as though it's already happened because God is so faithful. There's, there's just a boldness here that again comes through verse after verse. He says, I hate those who worship worthless idols. I trust in Yahweh. That's what other people did in David's day. When they were in trouble, they would go to their idols and they would look to their idols to save them. Some were so extreme, they would sacrifice a child to certain idols because they thought, if I'm really serious, I'd rather just lose one child than everything. Wicked, wicked religion systems. 
And David says, I'm not looking to worthless idols. I'm looking to the living God, the God who's there, the God who does something. That's who I'm looking to. I trust in Yahweh. I will be glad and rejoice in your unfailing love. That's the Hebrew word chesed. Or just hesed, if you're a Gentile. (laughs) We talked about this last week. The closest we can get to the word grace in the New Testament. David is saying, instead of fretting about his troubles, he's rejoicing in God's unfailing love. This just goes to show, no matter what is stacked against us, we can rejoice in God's loyal, unfailing love. He says, for you've seen my troubles and you care about the anguish of my soul. Hmm. Yeah, you know, have you ever wondered if God sees or cares? Some of us, we go through painful experiences and we just conclude. Maybe we even cried out to God and it didn't seem like he came through. And we wonder, did God even see? Did God even care? David says, no, you do see. You do care. And he says, you see my troubles, but it's not just what's happening to you that he sees. He says, you care about the anguish of my soul. My feelings. God knows your feelings. And he is a God of compassion. And he knows and he cares. And maybe you've wondered this. And maybe you've gotten cynical. And maybe you've asked God, do you see, do you care about what's happening to me, about how I'm feeling, how I'm being affected by this? And God has given you Psalm 31.7. And he's brought this to you tonight as his promise that yes, I see. Yes, I care about you and about your anguish. He says, you've not given me over to the hand of my enemies, but you've set me in a safe place. Yes. And so here in verse 8, it seems like David is really starting to have a breakthrough. And then in verses 9 through 13, we see him again go back to expressing his anguish. And this is one of the things we find throughout the Psalms is this pattern of the truth about God and what is true about me and how I feel and how that's different than the truth. And it's this interplay between the truth and the feelings. And we've got to have both of them because we are thinking and feeling beings. If you just express the truth without sharing your feelings, they're just going to be lurking there. You won't have actually dealt with them. As one author put it, you've got to have your feelings or they're going to have you. But at the same time, you know, some, we just, some of us express the truth and wonder why we're stuck. Some of us just sh- share our feelings and we wonder why we're still down in the swamp. We've got to have both. That's what David's doing. He's sharing, he's expressing the truth, and he's, he's interspersing that with real heartfelt, genuine emotion. And he says, have mercy on me, Yahweh, for I'm in distress. Tears blur my eyes. He's suffering so badly, he's, he's weeping. My body and soul are withering away just under the strain, the stress it can take its toll physically on you. I'm dying from grief. My years are shortened by sadness. My strength fails me because of my sin. I'm wasting away from within. Oh, isn't that an interesting admission? David, not just some innocent victim here. What, what, what he's admitting is part of the reason I'm in this situation 
is because I've got some kind of contribution to it as well. Part of this is on me. And this can be one of the most painful parts because you think about what happened and you think, if I had been better, if I had done better, would I have avoided this altogether? You think, if only I'd been stronger to resist, stronger to do the right thing, but I wasn't. If only I'd been more thoughtful. If I just thought before I spoke, if only I hadn't lost my temper. I really did not help this situation. If only I had been, if I had prayed more, my prayer life is so anemic. What if I was a man of prayer? Would this still have happened? If only I'd been more articulate. I just couldn't speak. I couldn't say the right thing. I, in hindsight, I know what I would have said. I couldn't think of it at the time. If only I was a better leader. And this pain, this, where he feels like he's wasting away, you know, it's like, you just, you're torn here because you think about what you did and how you fell short. And sometimes it just feels like this ulcer that's just going to eat its way right out of your stomach. You ever had that? Or you just feel like the stress is sitting on your heart so heavily that it just feels like every beat is effort from your heart and the stress hormones are just flowing through your body. And you lie on your bed at night and you can't sleep and you think about what happened and you worry about the next day and what this is going to turn into. And it's so painful. I've been there. Man, have I been there. Probably the most painful times in my life were these right here. I knew the contribution I had made. And you couldn't really, can't really sort out what would have happened otherwise because otherwise didn't happen. What happened, happened. But how does David's sin affect his boldness? Is he any less bold? Is he cowering? Is he withdrawing from God? Do God's promises suddenly not apply because David had a part here? Has God ceased to be his rock and or his fortress? Does David's sin make God any less concerned for the sake of his name? No. Does it reduce God's hesed, his unfailing love? No. Does it mean that God neither sees nor cares? No. The answer is no, no, no. And David is bold. Because it's not just perfect people who need a place of safety. The safe place would be very empty if only perfect people could get there. It's the rest of us. It's real people who are facing real problems that need that place of safety. And that's why Hebrews says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Once we have that relationship with God, we can draw near to him. David says, I'm scorned by all my enemies and despised by my neighbors. Even my friends are afraid to come near me. When, when they see me on the street, they run the other way. Yeah, you're not too popular when you got enemies. I'm ignored as if I were dead, as if I were a broken pot. I've heard the many rumors about me and I'm surrounded by terror on every side. My enemies conspire against me, plotting to take my life. Now, maybe none of us have ever been in this kind of danger, but it doesn't really matter. The point is that David is feeling all these things and he's expressing them to God. But I'm trusting you, Yahweh. 
saying, you are my God. Yeah, that's the but that's missing from a lot of our prayer lives. That's the line right there. Your prayers would go a lot different. If you could say everything you're saying now and then transition into but I'm trusting you, Yahweh, saying you are my God. My future is in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of those who hunt me down relentlessly. Yeah, I don't care about how many hands are against me here. I'm in your hand. Your hand is the only one I care about. He says, let your favor shine on your servant. He's praying. Number six, the famous blessing there, praying scripture. And your hesed, rescue me. Don't let me be disgraced, Yahweh, for I call to you for help. Let the wicked be disgraced. Let them lie silent in the grave. No, it's them, not me, that will eventually be disgraced. Silence their lying lips, those proud, arrogant lips that accuse the godly. How great is the goodness you have stored up for those who fear you? You lavish it on those who come to you for protection, blessing them before the watching world. Typical Yahweh there, storing up goodness, lavishing it on his people. You hide them in the hiding place. There's our hiding place of your presence, safe from those who conspire against them. You shelter them in your presence, far from accusing tongues. Yeah, and this is not the kind of hiding place where no one can find you. It's the kind of hiding place where no one can harm you. Praise Yahweh, he says, for he has shown the wonders of his hesed. He kept me safe when my city was under attack. In my panic, I cried out, I'm cut off from Yahweh. So David's like, man, I was really losing it there, wasn't I, God? (laughs) I was talking a little crazy there at one point. (laughs) It all seems pretty silly in hindsight when you go through these. But you heard my cry for mercy and you answered my call for help. You ever read through a journal entry from like a year or two ago? And you're like, I was so worried about that. Man, it'd be nice if we could get that perspective in the moment. And then he ends with an exhortation. He says, love Yahweh, all you godly ones. For Yahweh protects those who are loyal to him, but he harshly punishes the arrogant. So be strong and let your heart be strengthened all you who put your hope in Yahweh. And so it begins and ends with Yahweh, this psalm. He says, there's two forces at work. We need to be strong. That's our part. Strong in belief. And then let your heart be strengthened. That's God's part. We need to let him strengthen our hearts as we stay focused on him, as we continue to have faith in him. And what we learn from Psalm 31 is that trusting Yahweh as your safe place, that takes a certain amount of courage. It's not the easiest thing to do because there's so many things coming at you. And you know, that's why I love that scene in Lord of the Rings, the Helm's Deep scene. Because, um, you know, in, in the book, it plays out a little bit differently than in the movie. You know, in the movie, Theoden wakes up and he's like, we gotta, we gotta flee to Helm's Deep. And everybody's like, oh, you coward. Okay, in the book, that's not what happens. In the book, he wakes up and he musters the army to go and fight Saruman. And they're marching out with Gandalf and Aragorn and all the other good guys to meet Saruman. And this, this soldier staggers back from the front lines just as they're almost to the point of meeting. And he, he begins to tell what kind of army Saruman has mustered. This, this magical, magically bred army. And Gandalf's listening. And he's getting pretty alarmed. 
And Gandalf is the one who calls off the attack. He turns to King Theoden and he says, you go to Helm's Deep right now and you wait for me. And then takes off on his horse the other direction into the sunset. And it's great because um, there's this dude, Hama. He's the one standing behind King Theoden. And that, in that scene where Gandalf takes off, one of, the, one of the soldiers who's standing there, a nameless soldier, soldier no name, who's still kind of skeptical of Gandalf, thanks to Wormtongue's accusations against him. He leans over to Hama and he goes, what was that all about? And Hama goes, and Hama's like the, more like the best dude in Rohan, okay? And Hama goes, well, Gandalf's in a hurry. And he goes and comes sometimes when you least expect. And that soldier leans over again and he goes, you know, if Wormtongue were here, I think he'd be able to explain the situation. And Hama goes, true enough, but for myself, I'll wait till I see Gandalf again. And Mr. No Name says, well, you might be waiting a long time. He trusted in Gandalf that he was going to come when he said he would. That he was looking out for them. That he was doing something good even though they couldn't see what he was doing. And so then they go to Helm's Deep and they pull into the fortress and they get attacked. And the outer wall falls and they're being beaten back and it looks like the fortress is going to crumble for the first time in history and Gandalf's nowhere to be found. And King Theoden says to Aragorn, he says, it is said that this fortress has never fallen to assault, but now, in the middle of the night, surrounded by the enemy, my heart is doubtful. The world changes, and all that once was strong now proves unsure. How shall any tower withstand such numbers and such reckless hate? Gandalf's counsel seems not now so good as it did under the morning sun. And Aragorn responds, Do not judge the counsel of Gandalf until all is over, Lord. Well, of course, Gandalf does show up at just the right time. Later than he was expected, but at just the right time. And of course, they do win the battle through the most unusual of means. And the point of the story, even in the darkest time of the night when you're surrounded by the enemy and it seems like all hope is lost, don't stop trusting Gandalf. (laughs) And the point of Psalm 31 is even in the darkest point of the night when surrounded by enemies and all hope seems like it's lost, don't stop trusting Yahweh. He doesn't usually show up as soon as we think he will or in the way we think he will, but he's never late. He always shows up exactly when he intends to. The reason why it takes courage to wait on the Lord is because he often doesn't just take the hostility away. He leaves it there. Better just get used to that fact. Sometimes he might. A lot of times he doesn't. 
If that one goes, something else will probably pop up. But ask yourself this, what glorifies God more? Not having any opposition or loving your enemies and having joy and peace in the midst of the storm? What do you think sticks out more to a, a dark world? Would you rather have hostility from others in closeness with God or neither one? Because I found one or the other is where I tend to drift. You know, some of you are here tonight because you came looking for a safe place in the face of hostility. It's a hostile world. And it's not going to get any better. It's going to get worse as the end draws near. Until Jesus comes back and defeats every enemy, and it says the last enemy to be defeated is death. But you need a safe place until then. And you need a safe place when the end comes. You know, think about what, what would have been better for David? No enemies? Really? What were the best times spiritually in David's life? The times of the enemies. The times when he was on the run. David was doing pretty well spiritually when he was being chased from cave to cave. And not so much when he was sitting on his throne in comfort. He wrote a lot of psalms on the run, like this one here. What would have been better for Corey Ten Boom, our author we referred to at the beginning? Just to live a nice, peaceful life in Holland? Or to go through what she went through? To see a, God she, a side of God she never could see, have seen without the hostility that she faced? You know, she ends up at Ravensbrück, the dreaded prison camp, death camp for women that the Nazis were running. And at this point, her father has already perished. She's there with her sister, and her sister Betsy is dying. And as her sister Betsy is approaching her death, she says, Corey, God has shown me you are going to get out of here. And when you get out of here, you have to go and tell people our story. You have to tell them about hiding the Jews and what we went through and going from prison to prison and how we were treated and how God came through time and time again and how he's come through here for us even in the prison camp and how we've been able to love our enemies and be grateful and have joy in the most evil of places perhaps in the history of the human race. Because she says, we must tell people there's no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. She says, this proves the love of God because this can shine even down here where we've been. And she says, Corey, they will listen to us because we've been here. And Corey was released the day before she was scheduled to be executed by a clerical error. She was escorted safely out. And she spent the last 40 years of her life telling her story as a powerful witness for the love of God, the light of God, the forgiveness of God. And now she's in heaven. And it all went by so quick. And I doubt she's really mad about the life that she got dealt. I mean, we're still talking about it today, right? And what would be better for you? For God to clear all opposition and hostility out of your life or to leave some there for the very short, short time you have left in this life? So you can learn to pray Psalm 31 like you really mean it. And so you can find out what it means for God to be your place of safety. And that's Psalm 31. What a great psalm. 
Yes, Lord, you, um, you are our rock. You are our fortress. You are our safe place, our hiding place, Lord. Um, and um, I'm really grateful for passages like Psalm 31 that show the real honest wrestling of someone like David who's in the midst of it and um, how he approaches you how he weaves truth and his feelings together, Lord. And thank you that you show us a different way according to your wisdom to approach life, to approach enemies even, Lord. You say to love our enemies um, and not to lash out, Lord. You say to turn the other cheek. And you say also that we need to trust you um, to do what is right, Lord. Thank you, God, that you have taken away the hostility that was between us and you, Lord. I pray for anybody here who's not had that experience, that they would go from being your enemy to your friend tonight. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.